Welcome to Gibraltar Stories. I'm Lindsay Weston and this is the fifth and penultimate part of The Closed Frontier 50 Years On, a podcast mini-series about the closure of the border between Gibraltar and Spain. He was like my uncle and we embraced and we, we cried, we, we shed tears because we realised, you don't realise um, how much you're going to miss somebody until you actually see them go. It's not just an employee, it's Francisco, you know? Fifty years ago, on the 8th of June 1969, Spain's General Franco closed the frontier, the land border between Gibraltar and Spain. Families were split. Some faced the difficult choice of having to decide which side of the border to live on. Supply lines were cut, stopping anything crossing from Spain, including food, medical oxygen and communion wine. Spanish workers were forced to leave their jobs in Gibraltar. Some even lost their businesses. That resulted in many of them having to move away from the area in search of employment elsewhere, as well as leaving a huge hole in the labour force here. Ferry services between the Rock and the Spanish port of Algeciras across the Bay of Gibraltar ceased to operate, and telephone lines were cut off. The only way in and out of Gibraltar was by air or by sea. The main route was the Tangier-Gibraltar ferry. Running up to the closure, restrictions had been increasing for the cross-frontier workers who came from Spain to work in Gibraltar each day. In August 1966, the female Spanish labour force was stopped from coming here to work. It was a harsh development for both those who had welcomed the Spanish women into their businesses and homes, as well as for the workers themselves, who not only faced losing their jobs, but also the personal relationships which had developed over the years. Dr Jennifer Ballantyne Pereira, director of the Gibraltar Garrison Library. Women are withdrawn, and at that point... It's seen as significant. Many of these women would have been working uh, within a domestic setting. They would have been cleaners, nannies, um, working as waitresses in a service industry. Some may have even been working within the naval base. Um, I I don't have statistics. I, I don't know. But within a domestic setting, that would have been important because they would have built up relationships with their employer, Certainly, if looking after children as nannies, it would have been a huge, uh, uh, well, uh, a rupture, I'd say, even to, to, to leave these families behind. In fact, I saw a documentary, La Roca, it, it came out about, I don't know, maybe five years or so, and there was one Spanish lady who had been a nanny for a family in Gibraltar. And for her, it was as if she was leaving her own children behind. She was young at the time, this is, that this had been her, 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 not only her job, it was more than that. It was much more than that. There was loyalty towards the family. The family had been very protective of her as well, had supported her throughout. So it was more, she felt that she had lost part of her family in the process. So when we talk about the border closing, it's not only about the economic uh, impact 
clearly this is also about kinship ties, about friendships. And even though some of these friendships were built on an employer-employee basis, they went far beyond that. The housewives of Gibraltar rallied to the call when the void was left by the Spanish female workers. Journalist Clive Galt remembers their swift action. In 24 hours they got organised. They, they created a, woman, a women's association and uh, started getting organised. So they get, got a committee going and started saying, OK, what do we need? You need to drive lorries. OK, who can drive a lorry? You, you and you. Drive the lorries, uh, whatever. No, the shops uh, need people working in them. Get people who want to work in a shop and all this sort of thing. So just to keep the whole, it was tremendous. I mean, and very very quick reaction. Mind you, uh, they'd been through the war. I mean, the Gibraltarians had been through the Blitz, and had been through the evacuation, and it's in our genes. I mean, you know, there's no looking back. You go forward. It was tradition at the time for most women to give up their jobs when they married and started a family, but they returned to work to fill the roles left by the Spanish women. Irma Casiero was one of those women who, through the Gibraltar Housewives Association, helped out and kept Gibraltar going. It made us all of a sudden from being cosy little women in their own home, looking after children, what a few working. Uh, to think differently in a way that us women who had always been put aside were as good as a man. They equal. Just say equal. We helped Gibraltar, we did help Gibraltar. And now in different ways the women are helping Gibraltar also. They're in politics, uh, doctors. Uh, lawyers. Before, oh, women didn't even go to study, uh, but then maybe the, the evacuation, the war, made us another way to live, thinking differently, maybe. In June 1969, the Spanish government struck its hardest blow against Gibraltar. Overnight, General Franco ordered the withdrawal of the Spanish labor force from the rock and closed the land frontier. This was perhaps the most dramatic decision taken by Madrid in its campaign against Gibraltar since 1964. Scenes on that day, which was a Sunday, were pathetic, never to be forgotten. Men who'd worked in Gibraltar for a lifetime cried like children. The drama carried on all day. The workers, carrying their few belongings and their tools, trooped across the frontier into Spain for the last time, and the gates closed at 11.30. The late David Hoare from GBC there, describing the withdrawal of the Spanish male labour force just before the frontier was closed. Workers had time to say their goodbyes and collect their belongings before heading back into Spain for what could be the final time for many of them. It left not only a gaping hole in the Gibraltar labour force, but also in people's lives. David Bentata remembers his father's handyman with fondness. Francisco Morales Rios, he married uh, a lady whose father had a chicken stall in the uh, market in Gibraltar. Um, so they were very there was also lots of Spaniards that had businesses in Gibraltar like uh, fruit and veg and chicken and fish 
Um, so when they had to close, it was traumatic for them. And Francisco was, he taught me how to ride a bike. Uh, he helped me with things I wanted to do on my own hobbies. He was a very good friend of my father's, who was one of these uh, jack-of-all-trades. He was carpenter, electrician, painter, uh, mechanic. Whatever had to be done, they could do it, because they were very enterprising. The Spanish worker in Gibraltar was very enterprising. I believe they still, they still are. So the day that we realized he had to go, he was not going to come back, we actually cried. And this was a man who was maybe 20 years older than me, easily, if not 30. Like I tell you, he was like my uncle. And we embraced and we, we cried, we, we shed tears because we realized, you don't realize um, how much you're going to miss somebody until you actually see them go. It's not just an employee, it's Francisco, you know? It was, he was sent to, he managed to get a job in Valencia afterwards. He had to go up to Valencia to get a job in a hospital. But that was, that was difficult, that was difficult. We had together, um, we had the shop and we had my, pet, my, my home was above the shop. So we would go up to my home, we would all sit to have tea together. Uh, to have, also in winter, in the cold days of winter, when my father wasn't looking, Francisco would give me a shot of uh, cognac. <laughs> he would bring it from Oh, I loved it. He was a nice man, very nice, very, very nice man. News footage from the time shows workers trooping across the frontier with their boxes of tools and embracing their Gibraltarian co-workers as they said goodbye. Jackie Vila's father can be seen in that television footage. My dad was possibly, his, his uh, co-worker was Spanish and he was possibly one of the last ones to go through um, the, the frontier before it finally closed its gates. And my dad is the one, the man in the white shirt with a cigarette. He smoked three packets a day, three cigarettes in his mouth, and he's hugging his co-worker. He'd just given him a lift. And it was quite an emotional um, viewing. And he, he still remembers the gentleman. He still remembers helping put his bags. And he said he was very te teary-eyed when that did happen. I think, on the whole, it was heartbreaking. It was, the air must have been highly strung, um, the, 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 the sense of doubt of what happens now on both sides. Um, I, I, I reckon, I reckon the air that night must have been electric, um, emotionally charged, um, very, very sad, great sadness felt on both sides. Families were being split up overnight. The loss of the workers was felt immediately. As a new day dawned on Monday the 9th of June, some businesses simply didn't open. Paula Galliano remembers it well. They withdrew the male labour force and they didn't let any of the men over the frontier to work. So little things for me, the little shop on the corner, which was run by two delightful brothers, um, where I got all my groceries from, they just were not allowed in. Just overnight, no warning, no ability to come in and sort out their shop and get rid of things that, that might rot. They were, they were just, just not allowed in. The Spanish workers found it hard to get new work in La Linea and the Campo area on the other side of the border with Gibraltar. Many were forced to go further afield to find employment. Clive Galt again. It was tragic in many ways because a lot of these people were in their 40s, their 50s, whatever. They couldn't really start a new life. 
they were forced to go back to Spain. Those who had jobs lost their jobs. Then in Spain, in La Línea, there wasn't enough work for them. So they had to go to Barcelona, to Valencia, to Madrid, and some of them, ironically, to London, because they spoke English and they'd been working in the dockyard. And uh, their life was completely broken, collapsed. And then the human side of losing their friends and because relations had always been good between both sides of the border. And there were many Spanish girls married to Gibraltarians or vice versa. So really it was the breaking up of families. Henry Smart, a customs officer working on the border at the time of the frontier closure, says the withdrawal of the labour force had a damaging impact on both sides of the frontier. It was a very sad time, apart from everything else. I mean, we must remember that there were about 10,000, 11,000 Spaniards working in Jeep who overnight had to leave Gibraltar. Then we go into the Spanish side, La Línea. There were about 80,000 inhabitants at the time, of which 40,000 had to leave La Línea because they didn't have any work, so they moved away to France, Portugal, Germany, or whatever, you know, and that was the life at the time. Slowly, slowly, they... I suppose they got accustomed to that sort of life. But it affected Jeep. That is the thing. So overnight, the government at the time recruited Moroccans. So most of the Spaniards were posts were taken over by Moroccan from Tangier in particular, plus females. Up to that day, females were not working all that much in Jeep. So then they started to work. So, I mean, we, we carried on and we survived. Better or for worse, but we did. And that was life at the time. Some provisions had been put in place by the Franco government to reassure the Spanish workers that they would have employment once the border closed. But local historian Tito Vallejo-Smith says they were empty promises. In late 1964-65, they started building the refinery across across the bay. That refinery was destined to the north of Spain. But Franco decided, no, no, we'll put it down there as a bait, you know, to, to, to see, for the, the, the Spanish workers to see that there's going to be work here. You know, when you lose your job in Gibraltar, don't worry, look what we are building here. We are building this big refinery. And they also built a factory for the women, Confecciones Gibraltar, where they were going to make, make clothes and other, you know, textiles and things like that for the women. And the refinery could only employ about 100 men, that was it. The, uh, the Confecciones only lasted a year or two. The, 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 the manager ran off with all the money, and that was when bankrupt. So when they they actually closed the border, because they closed it, uh, first of all, for vehicular traffic, you could go across uh, on foot, and then obviously the the closure came in June 1969, and uh, Gibraltar... The, the Spanish people of La Línea were the ones who suffered most. The action by Franco backfired on the Spanish workers, in particular in La Línea, which Tito Vallejo-Smith says was turned into a ghost city. In a way, economically, personally, people did not lose out. The, the, the Spanish neighbours lost more because they had to immigrate. They had to go to... And I've got photographs of the Spanish minister for labour by La Línea telling the Spanish labour... Labourers, don't worry, when we close the border, there's going to be jobs for everybody. Not not really. They were offered jobs in Asturias, in the north of Spain, in mines and things like that. I mean, you're a carpenter, what are you going to do in a mine? You have to leave your family here, your house here, to go to Asturias or or the Basque country to work in a mine, you know? 
and so many of them opted to, to leave Spain to England, Holland, France, Germany, you know. And La Línea actually became a ghost city, a ghost city, which was a very big shame. Gibraltar was left reeling from the action taken by Franco. Alfred Sacramento, who at the time of the closure worked in the dockyard and was a member of the Young Christian Workers Group, remembers simple things like there being no civilian bakers to make the bread. The other important thing was the vacuum that was left. Because, for example, the bakers were all Spaniards, so, so we had no bread. So, and there were other trades that were solely the barbers, I remember. Mm. You know, you, you, the, you, then, then, then this gradually started to come in. They didn't all come in at once, did they? they it was staggered. They, they, but, but again, the, the essential thing was that we needed bread, we needed butchers, we needed barbers, and I can't remember what else. Of course, the employers, the, the dockyard and the government, that, that came later. But women started working for the first time in their lives because things had to be done. So, so Gibraltar adapted quite well locally. Because, and then, of course, with the help of the, of the Moroccans. But Gibraltar was back up and running very quickly as people volunteered to take on extra work and many women left the home to work as well. Tito Vallejo-Smith again. There were strategic places like the hospitals, old people's homes, the bakeries, you know, the, the essential services. Uh, everybody mucked in. There were lists of rows of, of students having their names taken who were volunteering to do whatever work. The Housewives Association was very instrumental in helping as well. They, they took care of the, the elderly in the hospitals. They, they manned, uh, you know, they used to clean everything that was being done. They, they did, you know, without getting paid. Eventually, they were offered payment. You know, if, if you want to get the job, you can have it permanently. But, you know, they were doing it, you know, as an emergency. So eventually, those, those jobs were covered by, by permanent people. And, and, and the whole of Gibraltar mucked in. On the eve of the closure, a young, newly qualified architect turned up in Gibraltar with his young family to begin work at his family's business. He had no idea what he was walking into when he arrived. My name's William Surfety. I uh, studied architecture and qualified in 1969, uh, just the uh, month the frontier shut, and I actually arrived here with my young family uh, on June the 7th, hearing that uh, workers here had been told to present themselves at 11 o'clock at the frontier with their tools on their way out for the last time. And the um, many Gibraltarians, about 400 families who lived in La Linea, had been told they had until, I believe it was Sunday night, to uh, choose whether to cross the frontier for the last time this way or stay in Spain. So that was the situation I found when I arrived back here. I arrived here, my family owned a building business which had employed about 180 Spaniards out of the 200 employees and uh, found, of course, that on the Monday uh, the firm was at a standstill. It had contracts to complete many and that was the situation in the private sector of the building industry in which I was. Fortunately, the private sector, the government and the military had foreseen the events which happened. And work started straight away to find the new workers needed to fill the gaps left by the Spanish workers. Action took place immediately because the frontier closure had been foreseen 
for some years. I mean, this was a problem that, was, that started in 1954, um, worsened from the Spaniards' point of view when we decided to hold a referendum on Spanish or British sovereignty in 1967, and uh, the restrictions which had started in the late 50s just uh, became worse and worse until in 1969 we were faced with this total closure. But, uh, you know, there had been problems with goods and traffic for some months before. So, um, contractually, the firms that were involved in the private sector were prepared for it. Um, the government, the British government, which was a client uh, in the guise of the MOD, and the Gibraltar government with the Public Works Department was also a client, and to a lesser extent the private sector developers, not many at the time, had accepted a clause of force majeure as um, not cancelling the contracts but uh, allowing renegotiation of prices. It was that which allowed uh, the organisation of the what I know, the private sector building industry, to take place um, with foreseeable higher costs. I was very young at the time, I was 25, and really, even after seven, seven years at School of Architecture and some time working out in the UK, one doesn't get to learn uh, enough about building uh, to take a great part, but I was thrust in at the deep end, in a way, and um, we became organised immediately as a private sector, uh, construction sector, and we formed uh, what was known as the Gibraltar Master Builders Association. The association met with the government and the Ministry of Defence, and we were told that uh, this had been foreseen, that... Uh, there was a readiness in Morocco to help resolve our problem by providing Gibraltar with uh, labour and materials. And, of course, now it became totally necessary. So Gibraltar had, uh, had a plan, and um, I was found to be in the private sector of those that knew anything at all about building, and I knew very little, um, the one who spoke French. So I was lucky enough to be sent with one of three teams that went to Tangier initially to try to organise the recruitment of labour and the investigation on where materials actually were, neither of which had been done before. Another young man who could speak French was Manuel Perez. He was back in Gibraltar for the summer break from studying to become an engineer in England. He went over to Morocco too as part of one of the recruitment teams. They were asking for volunteers who could uh, uh, speak English, Spanish and French um, because they were planning a trip to Morocco to employ uh, labour there. Um, since I could, I could do that, I, I volunteered. And um, in, in that, during that summer, we went for, uh, I think it was just over a week, um, uh, as part of a delegation of uh, official employers of the Department of, of, uh, of Labour and Social Security. 
and uh, we went over to Tangiers, uh, Rabat and Kenitra um, to carry out and conduct interviews and uh, employ personnel. And what was that like as an experience as a young man? Oh, I mean, it's an incredible experience. Um, I mean, I, ha- I had been to Morocco before and was familiar with the, the area, but uh, uh, clearly <clears throat> in, in terms of um, the importance of, of having to go over and, and interview people and, and translate and everything else, was, it, it was quite uh, interesting. Interesting time too. I remember in Rabat walking by the American embassy and, and seeing their great poster there um, that um, they had actually, the man had, had landed on the moon, which was in, in, in those days. And again, the, the, the reception by the Moroccan authorities was incredibly good. Uh, we were invited by the governor of uh, Rabat to, um, I believe they call it a musim, which is an end of harvest festival out in the in the open. And um, uh, that was conducted very much in a Moroccan style. And it, 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 it was, yeah, absolutely brilliant and uh, for me. It also gave me the possibility of earning some overseas allowance <laughs> with which I brought a, uh, bought a typewriter to do my, my final year thesis at university. My name is uh, Ali Dwisi. I'm the president of the Moroccan Community Association in Gibraltar. The Moroccan community is a part of, of to contribute Gibraltar up, you know, to take Gibraltar up because most of the Moroccan, has been 7,000 Moroccans in 1969 workers here in the EMOD and the hotels and the construction and all of that. And it's been part of the community's uh, um conveying with the with the with all our people in Gibraltar is bringing some food as well from the Morocco from Morocco water um the food is must be coming daily and water and all of that also the oxygen because when the border is being closed there's no oxygen for the hospitals and Morocco put immediately with claro is with the with the UK deal is put a, a helicopter to bring oxygen to Gibraltar and thanks to God, is the people has been sick and all of that has been okay with the, with all of this. So when the frontier was closed, Morocco not only provided food brought in by boat on a daily basis, it provided medical oxygen for the hospital, water in case of drought, building materials and around 7,000 workers. While the recruitment process was going on in Morocco in the summer of 1969, work had to be done to prepare accommodation and other facilities for the new influx of workers. William Surfety explains. In the meantime, in the background, uh, other teams were doing other things here in all three sectors. Uh, and that was the construction of accommodation for this very large number of people whom we were going to flood Gibraltar with and which we were doing. So immediately the frontier had closed, uh, construction had started on um, the preparation of accommodation, which of necessity, unfortunately, was um, operation only for the operatives that we were recruiting and not their families. So these large numbers of men from Morocco came on their own to live in dormitories which 
had been, which were former barrack rooms, and the families, incidentally, which came from uh, La Linea here, also arrived overnight to even uh, less salutary surroundings. So we had about 350 families who arrived and were put up in uh, really uh, difficult um, housing. The Gibraltarian families returning from Spain to live here and the workers coming from Morocco had rather basic conditions to live in. Manuel Perez explains that there was little time to get ready to cope with this sudden inundation of people. In terms of accommodation, clearly the main impact was uh, from the official employers who had the whole of cases. The whole of this was uh, a workers' hostel. And they also built a hostel in Devil Star Road uh, for Moroccans. Uh, but nevertheless, the demand was much more than the supply, and uh, clearly they fell into the hands of um, the local market, and the local market was already, you know, quite uh, taken because uh, a lot of Gibraltarians themselves couldn't find accommodation readily. Plus, those that lived in Spain and that during the closure of the frontier decided to come back and so you know they had to be put into uh, quarters now it's a, it's a beautiful uh, really upmarket development in town range before it was just quarters of people just bundled in because uh, you know there was no other other accommodation Former government minister and district officer for the Transport and General Workers Union, Luis Montiel, was a member of the Young Christian Workers Movement. The group worked with the newly arrived Moroccan workers to try to improve conditions for them. People do tend to adapt. And necessity, as we say, you know, is the mother of invention. People tend to uh, find their, their niche. And uh, the Moroccans um, got themselves together and, uh, you know, did the best they could. Young organisations from Gibraltar, like ours, for example, we supported them in their um, living accommodation issues, their um, exploitation issues at work, and, uh, and, and strive to, to get uh, things to... areas to, for them to enjoy themselves or for recreation and all that was not easy in those days because space was limited, very limited. It wasn't plain sailing though for the Moroccan workers. At times they needed help to fight against exploitation with the backing of the Transport and General Workers Union and the Young Christian Workers. Louis Montiel again. Cases of exploitation in the private sector, the main exploitation was that they didn't pay their social insurance contributions. That had a very significant effect when, when, when you had up at the end of your working years to see whether you get a pension or not. That was one of the ones that most, they were most afraid of, uh, not getting their, their social insurance paid. And of course, it's also a, a ticket to, to future rights, you know, because you've, you've got to prove that you've been working and, you, uh, and so forth. Ali Duisi, president of the Moroccan Community Association in Gibraltar, says the group has needed to fight over many years to get the rights of the Moroccan workers recognised, but at last progress is being made. The Moroccan Community Association has been looking for the rights of all the Moroccans who have been living in Gibraltar for many years. And uh, thanks to this government of Gibraltar, Fabien Picardo has been doing 
a big job with us and we have uh, our people now will most of the Moroccans now is have a nationality and uh, can have the family right or to bring his family to live with him in Gibraltar and uh, to have a child in school uh, all of that normally is have uh, the full rights to to be living in Gibraltar like any Gibraltarian but that didn't come straight away though did it it, it took a while before yeah rights of course came your way. of course of course We've been doing a big job with the, with the union and all the human rights and also we've been in Geneva. We've been fighting hard with the, with the, the, the another government to have that right, you know, and finally we have it and we've been here in Gibraltar living together with our people or, or part of this rock, you know part of the Gibraltar community. This year, ahead of the commemorations to mark the 50th anniversary of the frontier closure, a plaque was unveiled at Unite the Union's headquarters in Gibraltar to pay tribute to the Moroccan workers who came over here and the contribution they made to the economic and political survival of Gibraltar during those years. The plaque says, thank you, and its inscription reads, we pay tribute to all those workers that made Gibraltar their home and helped us defeat the blockade of the dictator General Franco. This is a lesson to be learned from an act of aggression, a historical reminder that provides a message about the importance of uniting against discrimination and social injustice. Gibraltar's Deputy Chief Minister, Dr Joseph Garcia, says Gibraltar couldn't have managed without the help of the Moroccan workers. I think it was essential, and I think that um, Gibraltarians always remember they owe a very deep uh, debt of gratitude to the Moroccan government at the time and to the Moroccan people who came over. Many of them stayed on in Gibraltar after the border opened. Many of them took British nationality and uh, Gibraltarian status and are now integrated and part of our community. Labour also came to Gibraltar from the Algarve. Portugal not only supplied workers but also further building materials in addition to what was sourced from across the strait. William Servity again. The Algarve, uh, which didn't at the time have factories, cement factories, um, or big enough rivers to provide us with clean, sharp, non-saline sand. And those two, the cement and the sand, had to come from Lisbon. So we then had to go back to the transport man and say, OK, you know, you can do certain things with Tangier, but you have to do the other things with Portugal. So he needed even bigger ships and more financing, more help, and the financing was simply done through upping the price of the materials, which was um, catered for in our force majeure contracts. So that, that, within two years, was how Gibraltar got back into building mode, which uh, had depended entirely on an open frontier uh, since the beginning of construction here. Um, that was a huge undertaking, though, to have to, to replace so many, such a huge chunk of the labour force in addition to the materials. It's, I guess that's, that's part of the, the story that people quite often aren't aware of. Of course, it was done by very few people. The building industry, in any case, is sort of um, mute. 
it's under our feet. Uh, we're not mostly occupying buildings that are under construction. So you just don't... The man in the street doesn't really realise how much organisation it takes to put up a building. It wasn't just the incoming workforce which helped get Gibraltar back on its feet and working again, though. Manuel Perez believes in many ways Gibraltar became self-sufficient because of the ingenuity of its tradespeople and the skills they learned during their training. This system of apprenticeships ensured that there were highly skilled Gibraltarian tradesmen. And because of that, we could maintain the services, the essential services running in a situation where, you know, you just couldn't get on the phone and get a spare part by the following day. Um, That you had to use your ingenuity, know how things were, were made, and improvise to keep the thing running. I mean, I can give you one example, there are many, but one one simple example. A refuse incinerator. We had a refuse incinerator and the induced air fan for the refuse incinerator just packed up. Imagine the situation. You couldn't store refuse for more than six days because after that, well, you didn't have a space in in the incinerator. But also, by keeping it there for a period longer than that, the reaction... The chemical breakdown of, the, of, of refuse is exothermic. It provides heat, so you can have a fire. So we had that. The incinerator wasn't working. It couldn't work without an induced air fan. Phoned UK. Can we have a spare fan? Yes, in six months' time. Yeah. So... Luckily, we had pattern makers in, in um, who, so that part of the fan could be uh, cast. We had welders who could put it together. We had good mechanics to, to get everything ready. Within three days, we had made a, a new induced air fan, which, you know, by buying it from UK would have taken six months. In three days, we had it up and running. So it was that those sort of things which were close shaves in terms of that. I mean, for for me as a as a young engineer, it was a godsend because it, it really, you know, ingenuity is the meaning behind engineering. So we had to, you know, really improvise and do stuff. But without the craftsman to actually build these sort of things and keep the thing running, I mean, it would have had no electricity. Or, no water, no, you know, it's, uh, so yes, I think the backbone really of, of why we survived was, was that because we had the knowledge and the skills to do that. And so Gibraltar survived the closure of the frontier and the withdrawal of all the Spanish labour with help from across the strait with workers from Morocco, as well as labour from Portugal and further afield. Coupled with the skills of the existing Gibraltarian workforce and many people stepping up to take additional part-time jobs and the housewives of Gibraltar returning to work. My sincere thanks to everyone who contributed to this episode and took the time to speak to me. A full list of contributors can be found in the show notes for this episode at gibraltarstories.com. 
My thanks also to the Gibraltar National Archivist, Anthony Pitaluga, for all of his help while I was researching this project over several months, and for granting me permission to use the image of the closed frontier to illustrate this mini-series. Thanks also go to Philip Valverde, whose performance of Going South features in this series, and to GBC for allowing me to use the footage of the late David Hoare. I must also give Manuel Perez a mention too, as it was he who I spoke to first of all. He set me off on this journey and introduced me to several of the people who we heard from in this episode, including William Surfety. I spoke to William back in February in the early days of my research. He was incredibly helpful and patient and was very interested in the work I was doing. Unfortunately, not long after we recorded our chat, William passed away. I'd like to dedicate this episode of Gibraltar Stories to his memory. Next week, in the final part of the Frontier Closure 50 Years On, I'll be looking at the legacy of the closed frontier years, how it changed Gibraltar and how this anniversary has been commemorated. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please share it with your friends. You can subscribe to Gibraltar Stories for free on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify, and you can follow Gibraltar Stories on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next week, goodbye for now, and thanks very much for listening. Gibraltar, my Gibraltar, keep your face clean from the north side of the border. My Gibraltar, my Gibraltar, keep your nose clean from the north side. Water.